All right, friends, good morning. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, if you would open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let me give you a little bit of uh, advanced warning for any of you that do that old-fashioned thing called writing checks. We're getting ready to make a change, all right? So if you're prepared to give at the end, we're actually going to collect our offering here in just a minute before the sermon. So if you are a check writer, you can go ahead and uh, make that happen. If you're new with us, there are connection cards there in the back of the seat in front of you where you can give us a bit of information about yourself so we can better serve you as a church. The reason we're making this change is I want to more intentionally highlight one of... uh, One of the reasons I'm most thankful to be a part of the church at Cherrydale, and it is the sending and mission fervor of this place. We're so grateful to be a part of a church that seeks to multiply disciples here, there, and everywhere. And uh, over the past year, we've been able to be a part of the planting of the church at Blue Ridge. See a picture of their core group, hopefully, behind me, the church at Blue Ridge. These guys have been up and rolling For about a year now. We do this because we believe that everybody should have access to a healthy church in their community, teaches the gospel, and is intent on multiplying disciples. Call this the McDonaldization of the upstate, all right? We don't want to build a big one downtown and expect everybody to drive to it. We want to put one on every street corner and give people access. Now, hopefully the quality of the product is a bit better. I need to change my illustration, right? Uh, Get away from McDonald's to something a little bit less fattening uh, in our culture, but the point is still the same. Uh, We believe that uh, it it, it is unwise for people from Blue Ridge to drive all the way over here when we can send some pastors and plant a healthy church, and Robert and Ted have done a wonderful job in that community meeting at the learning center there and getting to work planting a church. I asked them for a few ways that we could pray intentionally for them, and you see those listed on the slide overhead, I hope. Yes, beautiful. Um, So Ted's leadership and the School Improvement Council and his work to begin a mentoring program there, Robert's development of their curriculum and tools to multiply disciples, and the launch of their fourth small group community. And I want you to know, as the ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward now. I want you to know that your giving has made this possible. Uh, The work that these brothers are doing would not be possible if you didn't do the active work of putting checks in the plate as it's passed. You didn't click the links on the website. You weren't committed to giving generously to your local church. And so we are so thankful for you, and those brothers wanted me to tell you thank you. And so I want us to spend some time uh, praying for them this morning as we turn our attention to the scriptures to be reminded visually that what we do here is important, but what we do here is an extension of what's happening all across the globe. And our church has tethers uh, to those places because of your generous giving and serving. So as the plates continue to pass, if you would join me just as we pray. And if you know these brothers, just as we still our hearts and uh, the busyness of our minds, if you would just silently where you are, if you would voice a prayer for Ted, Robert, their wives and kids, any members of the church at Blue Ridge that you know personally, if you don't know any of this community, if you would just pray generally for the 
the requests that are listed behind me. Our Father, we thank you that you are a sending God. We thank you that Christmas holds before us the reminder that you allowed your Son, prompted your Son, sent your Son, who willingly laid aside equality with the Father, took on the form of a servant to embed himself in this dark world, to be the Word made flesh dwelling among us. And in a very real way, through the church planting of Cherrydale, we have an opportunity to incarnate that message into new communities. That Jesus could be proclaimed, the gospel could be celebrated, disciples could be made. That those who are cut off from saving faith could be grafted into your church. So we pray for our dear friends, Ted and Robert, the church at Blue Ridge. We bring them before you, asking for your grace to mobilize them on mission this Christmas season. That you would use them to proclaim the gospel faithfully, even this morning as Ted preaches. God, would you fill him with your spirit, make his words clear and precise, and use them to scatter the seeds of the gospel on soil as you bring fruit. And we ask the same for ourselves this morning, that you would hear, uh, cause our hearts to be attentive to your word, and that your word would have its good effect, bringing conviction where it's necessary, bringing encouragement where it's needed, and mobilizing each of us to live more intentionally on mission to worship and declare you each day. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So I encourage you a moment ago to turn to Luke chapter 2. This week is the third in our teaching series entitled Peace on Earth. A phrase lifted from the angels in this passage in, in Luke 2. And as we think about the imagery of peace... Perhaps no visual communicates the frantic contrast to a life of peace better than this one. Kevin! Right? I mean, Home Alone's a classic. Every year, just gotta watch it. The scene of the mom on the plane realizing we left Kevin at home. What in the world are we going to do? And I've watched it 80 times, and the burglar scene at the end still, I mean, it's belly laugh. I still just crack up with Kevin booby-trapping his house and getting the wet bandits. It's just classic. Now, if you ever need another scene, another image, perhaps it's the other Christmas movie, Die Hard, right? John McClane crawling through the air ducts, trying to free the building from the terrorists who are holding it hostage. These two scenes, 
family and terrorism, and perhaps they go together, right? Uh, perhaps sometimes family feels like terrorism, communicate to us some sense of the frantic, disjointed nature of the Christmas season. And you perhaps are like me this morning and feel a sense of that franticness. We're eight days away from Christmas morning and there are family to see and presents to wrap and things to do and work to fulfill and life just moves like crazy. What does it look like to be a people of peace in the midst of a frantic world? That's what we want to consider this morning. Using the text of Luke 2 and particularly the embodiment of Mary and her interaction with the angel's message. So let's begin in Luke 2, verse 8. Familiar scene, perhaps, if even if you were not uh, heavily invested in the local church, this would be a passage that I would presume many of you have heard read. We read it every Christmas Eve in my home growing up. Luke's words, the announcement of Christ's birth. In verse 8, we begin in the same region. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So Luke begins his announcement of the birth of Christ, just with a summary of what shepherds do. This is the work of a shepherd, keeping watch of the flock, and here particularly keeping watch of the flock at night. This is an intimidating time to be a shepherd. You don't exactly pull up your flashlight app on your iPhone to see what's going on around you. You're on edge, and to this on edge, keeping watch, this group, an angel appears, verse 9. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, if you've ever been a person who, by virtue of your work, have had to keep watch by night. You know the, the coffee pot ever brewing, this sleep slumber coming upon you. Uh, you'd imagine they've been startled by things in the past, and here the angel comes, startles them. Luke records that they're filled with great fear, and the angel said what angels say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news Great joy for all people. This announcement, this threefold, ever-ascending praise, it's good news, where we get the word gospel, it's this good news announcement, which is going to be, which is going to provoke great joy. This is what good news does. It provokes, produces great joy. And then third tier, for all people. Good news, great joy for all people. Now, what's going to accomplish that threefold thing? Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, the significance of that can be easily lost in modern readers. This verse is loaded with significance. It's significance that Hugh and Donnie have teased out over the last two weeks for us. Exactly what is packed into these words in the city of David. This kingly throne that was promised to David so long ago 
would be embodied, would be rested upon by this Christ. He would be the king that David was thought to be, but never was because of his sin. He would be a savior, as Hugh showed us two weeks ago. Not he might save, but he will save, so much so that this is going to be his very name. He is a savior. If you've been with us this year, this is a theme we've seen throughout the book of Judges. Savior after savior, deliverer after deliverer, who can never do it. And the people continue to unravel, longing for a savior, and the book just ends with the people doing what is right in their own eyes, because there's not a savior to be found. Boom, angel's announcement, there's going to be a savior, right? This is good news of great joy for all people. The Christ, he's going to be the anointed Messiah, a truth that Donnie showed us last week. He would be the messianic, big word, right? Big, like, thousand dollar seminary word. He's going to be the anointed one. He's going to be the chosen king and the Lord. He will be the ruler of all of God's people. This is packed into this angel's announcement and the fact that this kingly throne, this savior, this messiah, this Lord, that's going to cause, that's going to be good news of great joy for all people. Then verse 12 and this is going to be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the angel helps kind of shine the spotlight on who they should be looking for because if you hear this announcement, Messiah, King, Savior, Ruler, Lord, you're probably not apt to look for a baby lying in a manger in swaddling cloths. So he says, in case you're prone to miss it, this is this is who you're looking for. It's going to be in a unique way that you would have never imagined, and this certainly serves as a precursor for all of Christ's life, right? If you're looking for the kingly throne of David, you're not apt to look for the path that Christ chose. So the path to his birth serves as a precursor for the path of the rest of his life, the cross, the empty tomb, and the resurrection. He's going to be unique. Then verse 13, suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, so, so note this, the host come and they do what we're told should happen in verse 10. They actually reflect what all people should do to this announcement. They praise God and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So to those, this is a subset of these. No, notice, good news, great joy for all people. Peace among those whom he's pleased. There's going to be a, a remnant. There's going to be a subset of people who are going to, by faith, receive this kingdom announcement and embody what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to come on earth. They're going to be people who experience this peace is defined. It's going to be seen among those for whom he is pleased. And then the angels go away, verse 15. The angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened that the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger, 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now certainly Mary's received the angel's announcement as well, so the, the shepherds are relaying this message. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard, as it's been told them. Now we, we have in this, these verses 15 to 19, 15 to 20, at least three different groupings of people represented. The all who heard there. We're not sure who all these that hear what the shepherds say to Mary and Joseph in this moment. Perhaps there are some onlookers, some bystanders, some people standing around. But notice how Luke describes what they did in verse 18. They heard it and they wondered at what the shepherds had told them. There's a lot to wonder about, isn't there? To consider, to think. Uh, imagine you've played the telephone game as a kid. The angel comes to the shepherds and says, this is what this one's going to do. Can you imagine the shepherds returning that? You won't believe it, Mary. We were out in the fields. Angel came, fear not. Here's what he said was going to happen to this baby lying in a manger. You're standing around listening to this conversation, and it's eavesdropping on sheer chaos. You're like, what in the world is going on? It's a lot to wonder about. The shepherds, they hear the news relay the news, return, glorifying God and praising God for all they'd heard and seen. And then to make the point clearer, Luke says, as it had been told them. God's faithful. He does exactly what he says. Told them, baby's going to be in a manger, does it. And they praise him for the fulfillment of these promises. And then, verse, uh, and then the third group, or the third individual, Mary, and Luke, in verse 19, singles her out and describes her response using some, some different terminology and some terms I want us to consider this morning. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then skip down to verse 21, the end of this part of the passage. And the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Mary and Joseph do exactly what the angels have told them to do. I've always been struck by verse 19. Mary treasuring up all these things and pondering them in her heart. I guess I'm struck because verse 19 begins with this clear contrast, the word but. Not sure all of what Luke intends by this descriptor, but it's clear that there's a, there's a contrast between verse 18, the shepherds who wonder, or, or all who heard it, who wonder at what the shepherds had told them, and Mary, but Mary, who treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. Let's, let's hold these two words in contrast, or, or hold these up for consideration, pondered. She pondered them. She thought on them. There's a clear parallel to verse 18. Those who heard it and wondered, Mary pondered. She thought on them. And sweet Mary has a lot to think on, doesn't she? Gabriel's words, 
her cousin Elizabeth's words, the shepherd's words, the promises of the Old Testament fulfillment of the Messiah's coming, every development, every new event, she's got a lot to consider. But she doesn't simply wonder or ponder. She also treasures. She ponders and she treasures. Now the Bible throughout, particularly throughout the Gospels, treasure language is worship language. Jesus, in Matthew 13, one of his shortest parables, says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. People who treasure worship out of great joy. This is good news of great joy for all people. They treasure that. It's a worship word. And herein lies the challenge for us in a home alone and die hard world. How do we, how are we a people who ponder and treasure Jesus on this side of the first advent? Like Mary, we too have glorious promises about what has happened and about what is to come. Consider Paul's words in Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or Paul's words to his mentee Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. These have overtones of the angelic announcement to Mary that are now embodied to the church, to all those who are in Christ Jesus, that between the advents, he has appeared and he will surely appear again. We have similar Great and glorious promises. The question then is, are we a people who live pondering and treasuring these great truths? Are we a people who live pondering and treasuring these great truths? Now, embedded in this exhortation is a great promise from Scripture. Remember Jesus' words when he says this, Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the great promise. If we grow in treasuring these glorious truths, Christ, we know God's wired us as being such that our heart's going to follow our treasure. So it's hard to think, how do I change my heart? We can't do that. God's the one that but I can grow in treasuring Christ and trust that because of the way he's wired me, my heart's going to catch up with the thing that I treasure. So are we people who ponder and treasure these great truths? And here, friends, is where we must shift and be the kind of people who can grow in moving from theory to practice. 
The last two weeks, we've spent a good bit of time considering the great truths of the scriptures of who this incarnated one is. The King, the Messiah, the 100% God, 100% man who dwelt among a people. But question for you and for me, is does that make any difference in the lives that you and I live on a daily basis? I'm reading a book, praise God. I'm reading a book uh, called The Ghost of the Innocent Man. It's a book about wrongful convictions throughout uh, North America, and the book runs on two parallel tracks. On one track is a lady who in law school read a case of someone who was wrongly convicted, crime he didn't commit, uh, spent two decades in prison, and her heart was stirred for this burden of there are people on death row that are perhaps wrongfully convicted. And so she launches something in North Carolina called the Innocence Project that's designed to assess the theoretical claims around wrongful convictions, both on the front end, what do we need to do differently with the lineups and so on and so forth, and on the back end, what do we do to those prisoners? But the cool thing about the book is it runs on parallel tracks. So we got the Innocence Project, this theoretical, what's happening up here, and then the author is also telling the story of Willie. Willie, a man who right outside of Statesville, North Carolina, was wrongfully convicted for raping a 68-year-old widow. And his decade on death row. And as the book moves, what happens is the theory of the Innocence Project and Willie's story start to merge into one. And over the course of the story, I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way in. And I'm, I'm pumped about how this thing's going to end. I know he's going to get out because he didn't do it. But the theory of what this lady is doing and Willie's plight merge into the same. And we see how the work that's going on in theoretical land shapes and impacts a practical story of a singular individual. I would ask the same of us this morning, that we would consider how the truths, fixed, authoritative, truths that many of us have heard time and time again in local church settings, is this truth merging with your life? in such a way that it shapes your daily practice that there is a Savior, there's a Messiah, there's a Davidic King, there's an incarnated one who has saved his people. Now, it's easy for us to be a people, perhaps we wouldn't articulate it this way because it feels convicting just to say it, to say something like, I would, but... Like, I, I, I would think on, ponder, allow this truth to merge with my life, but and this is uh, your pastor preaching to you who's not really good at pondering and treasuring things. I've got about 89 journals in my house with seven pages written on them. I've started, <laughs> I have some good motives to treasure and ponder, but I am uh, I, I'm not the best at this. Think of the buts. Mary would have for not doing this. A good bit to do on her little to-do list, you think? I mean, dealing with just the physical changes of having a new baby, the doubt and fear that has to come from knowing that you, are, you have given birth to the king, the weight of responsibility of raising this one that you've got to assume she feels overwhelmed, the perspective of others, Stirring, what am I going to do about the relationships? Now I have to go back into this. I'm figuring out how to be a new wife. I'm raising this promised one. 
people are weird in, in interaction with me. My busy life pales in comparison to the reasons Mary had for not being good at treasuring and pondering. So how do I grow to be a good treasurer or ponderer? Let me give you three practical action steps for us this morning as we seek to be the kind of peaceful people that Christ has redeemed. First, that we would consistently listen to God speak from his word. That we would consistently listen to God speak from his word. A little bit later, or earlier, I'm sorry, in this interaction, Elizabeth says to Mary that she's blessed because she believed. The angel speaks, she hears God's word, and she simply believes. This is the reality for you and I, that we would be a blessed people who listen to God speak and believe. Now, the beautiful truth for us, in contrast to what Mary is dealing with, is we're not getting an angel radically altering our world with new news, right? New news requires recalibration. It's disorienting. Doctor's diagnosis, bad. New news, got to figure out how to respond. Old news allows for what C.S. Lewis masterfully says. We spend our lives going further up and further in. It's like a ascending spiral staircase that we're always climbing and circling around the same truths that don't change. They're fixed and secure, and they're really good news that we can consistently ponder. I don't think it's any accident that a few chapters later, Luke is going to hold up Mary, a different one, in a very similar way, this scene from Luke, to Luke 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, parenthetically, American Christmas, right? And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Friends, have you chosen the good portion this Christmas? Have you chosen to rest, to reflect, to ponder, to treasure? See, it is easy for us to get our priorities out of whack, even when we consider things like peace. I would imagine that almost all of us universally are drawn to the peace of God. We want that in our lives. In fact, I would suggest that even many non-believers want peace. But do you want the God of peace more than the peace of God? You see, what we treasure, what we ponder this Christmas season 
isn't the pragmatic fruit, but rather the God who we are called to sit and rest and treasure. That we, like Paul, would count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of getting peace from God, having a good life, being encouraged with biblical community. No. The surpassing worth of of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Treasuring and pondering is all about pursuit of the God of peace. And the great thing about Christmas is it reminds us that long before we pursued the God of peace, the God of peace pursued us. He's the worst hide-and-seek finder ever because he's running, scrambling, saying, here I am. You want to find me? Here, here, come, right here. I'm right here. He's the prodigal dad on the porch saying, you look, you're going to find. Ask, seek, you'll find. I'm right here. So are we the kind of people who are asking, who are seeking, who are pursuing who are letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Secondly, learn to live in the mess of the moment. Learn to live in the mess of the moment. Sadly, treasuring and pondering are often past tense realities. I see a picture and I think, oh, those were some good days. My kids have grown up. I remember when we went to Holly Wild and had a cow uh, burp in our car. That was fun times, right? Sadly, treasuring and pondering can easily be something we do in the rearview mirror instead of in the present craziness of the moment. The mess of the moment, this is what Mary embraces. There are so many unanswered questions. There is so much uncertainty. She is blessed by the Lord, the recipient of God's kindness. She is one to whom he is pleased. And Mary can, in the midst of that, learn to live in the mess of the moment without having all of her questions answered, without having her to-do list done. This must, friends, become true for all those whom he is pleased, which if you are in Christ this morning, if you are an heir with Christ, this is, this is you. You are the recipient of the peace of God. Therefore, there should be a clear contrast between your experience of peace and that of a weary world. So this year, as you gather with your family and friends in the midst of a die-hard and home-alone reality, There should, in our countenance, in our conversation, in our grumbling and complaining, be a clear contrast in the felt reality of those of us who can endure life in a messy, sinful, sin-drenched world and endure it because we have a far greater hope and promises in Christ Jesus. And this season tethers us to those truths. I don't have to be frantic and disjointed. I can experience the peace of Christ. And thirdly, that we would be the kind of people that learn to create margin for meditation. And perhaps this is the greatest challenge for you and I. 
Scotty Smith, a pastor, uh, says it perhaps better than I can. He says this, But hurrying off like the shepherds has always been easier for me than sitting still and letting you tell me about yourself. It's always easier for me to talk than to listen, to stay busy, than to relax, to be productive more than be meditative. I confess this is sin, Jesus, for knowing about you isn't the same as knowing you intimately. An informed mind is not the same thing as an inflamed heart. Adoration of you trumps activity for you. Friends, this is great significance for us over these next eight days. That we would be the kind of people who learn to slow down enough to consider the significant truths of what Christ has done for us in his birth, death, burial, and resurrection. And it will often be the case that if you don't learn to do this, God will do it for you. God will find creative ways to slow you down so that you are forced to sit and consider the reality of your heart. Donnie said this, I believe, in a family meeting here recently. You wonder if Paul's stay in prisons was not largely a mark of God just slowing the boy down enough to sit and write some letters, right? I mean, you don't text Romans 8 or Ephesians 1. There is no group me that allows that. You have to slow down enough to consider the glorious truths of the gospel. And far too often, yes, there are contributing factors, but far too often our exhaustion is a mess of our own making because we have not chosen to pursue the treasure hidden in the field and we've scrambled after all sorts of other things. So a challenge for you this, these next eight days is simply to do nothing, to turn some things off, to rest, to have some time where you sit around your living room and hold before your family, how is God at work in our family this year? And just tell stories and laugh and talk about the good, significant things that God has done. Take a few breaks. Log off for a few minutes. Create some margin to remember that this season is a time when God sent Christ to save. Spurgeon brilliantly said, we may often forget to meditate on the perfections of our Lord, but he never ceases to remember us. That is the wonder of this Christmas season. God did not forget to think about you. He considered you so much that he sent Christ to save you. So friends, let's be a people who treasure, who live, and ponder that great reality. You join me as we pray. And as we do, let me invite you, before we sing or stand or interact or do any other things, to just ponder to ponder the significance of these days, to ponder the significance of Christ's work 
to ponder the awe-inspiring reality of your salvation. To ponder the hope that awaits you when Christ's glory is perfectly revealed forever. Simply ponder. 